Hey, all you nature nerds. This is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds. We are here again with another story. You're going to hear an amazing tale of peril. Yeah, there, there'll be some peril. That's Megan over there. She's telling the story. Hello. Uh, but before we hear the story for today, Jen, do you have some science news for us? I might just have a little science news. Oh. I don't know how much. I mean, it's a science news. Yeah. But it's also super creepy. Oh. Something that was in the news. I bet you guys heard about it. Did you hear about the human corpses that are coming up in Lake Mead? Because it's a drought or something, right? Yes. Yes. I guess over the last 10 years, the water levels have been plummeting. Mm -hmm. And this is the Lake Mead, which is Nevada's biggest reservoir. It's in Clark County, Las Vegas. And one of the largest reservoirs in the U.S., actually. It's actually been going since 1999. It's been going down, but the last 10 years have been pretty bad. Mm -hmm. Because of the receding waters on May 1st, this month, this regional drought led officials to find a metal barrel, which contained a corpse of a human (laughs) (laughs) that had been shot to death around 40 to 45 years ago. Oh, man. Based on the clothing. So he must have had some sweet late 70s, early 80s. And this was in CNN. They reported that. And then a few days later, these two ladies found some more human remains. They actually found a jawbone with some teeth at the Lake Mead's Colville Bay. So that was on May 7th, around 2 p.m. that local time. And they reported it to the National Park Service Rangers. So Mm -hmm. they went and they recovered the remains. They were taken to the Clark County Medical Examiner. They said there's no evidence of suggesting foul play. And I'm like, well, if it's just a job. So just a little history on that. So Lake Mead provides water to 40 million people across seven states. And into northern Mexico. And I'm smiling at Megan right now because I'm like, ew. <laughs> it's formed by the Hoover Dam, fed by the Colorado River, which we just talked about. Yes. It's about 30 miles or 48 kilometers east of Las Vegas. At maximum capacity, the lake, it holds 9.3 trillion gallons of water. Damn. But the last time the reservoir was anywhere near full capacity was 1999, which I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And water levels have been dropping steadily ever since because of warming temperatures fueled by climate change. What? Yep. Worsening persistent droughts conditions that um, have led to the region's worst dry spell in more than 1,000 years. Jeez. In August of 2020, Lake Mead's waters reached only about 35% of its capacity. And on May 9th this year, Lake Mead's waters level measured about 1,052 feet above sea level, roughly 162 feet lower, 162 feet. It's a lot lower than in 2000. And the lowest level on record since the 1930s. This is becoming a real issue. According to Brad Udall, who's a water and climate scientist at Colorado State University, he said, it's time to stop calling this a drought. Droughts are temporary. What we're seeing is anything but temporary. All I want to say is Brad Udall, why are you using the word fuscates? It makes it unclear. Let's he just say that. was definitely in a spelling bee. 
He was in a spelling bee. He's a smart guy. And Mm -hmm. I can't even say the words that he's saying. He wants us to know he's a smart guy too. They said a better way to describe this current decline of water in Nevada and California and other states is the aridification of the American West, he says, in which the region will become drier and more arid over the long term. That's already playing out in many parts of the region where winters do not translate to wet summers as the soil does not retain the same amount of water from the previous year. Hmm. Basically, everything's just getting drier. Yep. And hotter. So get ready to see a lot more skeletons. There was another article about that the bones that were found in the barrel could be linked to the Las Vegas mob. Oh. And it was like at the tail end. Did you ever watch Casino? Do you remember Is that it the one with Michelle Pfeiffer in it? Is it Michelle Pfeiffer? I thought it was... Are you thinking about Deborah Winger? Late, no, 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 oh, no. The that one that yeah. like showed her her lady parts when she crossed her legs. Oh, Sharon, Sharon Stone. Stone? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. You're right. I, I think, think it's Sharon right. Stone. But yeah, so it's kind of like the end of that era of the Vegas mob. And they say usually they would throw them in the desert. But in this case, they're like, why not? I mean, you know. It's really deep. It's really deep. That's a great science news. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, we should all follow that one for sure. Yeah. Excited to hear what you're going to be talking about today. Yeah. Again, I have no clue. You called me the other day. You were like, hey, you know, we need to get a bunch of episodes out before the summer. So we're like on track first, I was like, that is horrifying. I call it a really bad time. <laughs> and I was really she stressed She was having out. kind of like a, a, a mini crisis. Yeah. And I immediately came up with uh, three episodes. Anyway, this is the first one because it was part of a suggestion by one of our Instagram followers, Robert Potts, Bob Potts. Oh, this is the one I thought you were going to do last week, but you're yeah, doing it. Okay, cool. I'm doing it now. I still don't know what it's about, so I'm excited. Yeah, so we're going to start out with the Mendocino National Forest. Okay. In California. Mendocino? I like how you said that. Mendocino. Okay. Yeah, actually, I think this episode ties in a little bit to your last episode. I don't think specific tribes, but we're going to talk a little bit about Native American tribes today. Before it was the Mendocino National Forest, there were seven Native American tribes that lived in that area. The Yuki, the Nomalaki, the Patwin, Eastern Pomo, Northeastern Pomo, Wailaki, and the Hochnom. Hopefully I said all of those correctly. That's cool. Um, And there are more than 1,800 archaeological sites across this region in California. And then in 1907, they set aside this area called the Stony Creek Reserve. And that is what eventually became the California National Forest in 1908. And then in 1932, it was renamed to the Mendocino National Forest. So that's kind of where the name comes from. Mendocino National Forest is the only one of California's, I read two different things, either 18 or 20 national forests that does not have any paved road that crosses through it. Oh, Yeah, so there's no paved road, no highway. Okay. So there are back roads, like gravel, dirt roads. Yes. In total, this national forest is 913,306 acres, and it is around 65 miles long and 35 miles wide. We'll have a map so you guys can see what it looks like, where it is. It's divided into three ranger districts, Covello, Grindstone, and Upper Lake. And then all of the water that is in this area, they flow, it flows out to the Pacific. So it goes west mm-hmm. and it goes through the Eel River system and then eastward through the Sacramento River system to San Francisco Bay. That's where it ends. Okay. I know where that is. The Bay Area. Between 1850 and 1900, along what is now the border of this national park, mm-hmm. there were a lot of little sawmills everywhere. 
The land was also used by ranchers living in the Sacramento Valley for summer grazing in the late 19th century. And that's going to be something we're going to talk about in a little bit. And then there was a lot of copper mining in the late 1800s. We know about mining. We know all about mining. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was some strategic mineral mining during World War I and World War II for manganese and chrome. During the late 1800s and early 1900s, the National Forest was a tourist destination for mineral springs. So a lot of people would come drink mineral water because it's super healthy, quote unquote, and they would also soak in bath. Um, yeah, they did have these resorts. Some of the remnants of one of the resorts can be found at a place called Bartlett Flat. Uh, but the three other ones were at Fout Spring, Hugh Springs, and Allen Springs. And those are all, I guess, completely gone. You can't find anything left from them. All right. So I found this really great info sheet from the National Park Service. And it gave a bunch of fun facts. As they do. Yes. Like, did you know that about 2.6 million acres of water per year come from the Mendocino National Forest. That's over 847 billion gallons. What? Yeah, and it's equivalent to over 1.2 million Olympic-sized swimming pools. Wow. Enough drinking water for California's population for more than 72 years or enough water for over 6.4 million households for a year. The Mendocino National Forest stores about 83.9 million metric tons of carbon in its forest, and it sequesters on average 0.10 million metric tons of carbon annually. So it holds a bunch of carbon and then it sucks the carbon out of the CO2 in the air and, you know, sequesters it. If people don't know what carbon sequestration is. Good job, forest. Yeah. And that's actually enough to drive around the earth, like that much carbon, like fuel, if you will. It's enough to drive around the earth (laughs) 35,403 times. In terms of economy, the economy of California is the fifth largest in the world, and California's national forests contribute almost $2.6 billion annually in wages and income to small businesses. And the Mendocino National Forest supports about $25.8 million annually in labor income for people who work there and local businesses. So that includes like food and lodging, arts, entertainment and recreation, real estate, rental and leasing, and retail trade services. And that's about 530 jobs a year. Cool. So they are contributing to the local and uh, state economy. Yes, and to the globe. Just in case people didn't know that national parks do that. Over 274,000 people visit the Mendocino National Forest each year. Visitors to the Mendocino National Forest spend about $9.6 million during their trips. I guess that's annually as well. In terms of recreation... There are 210 lakes and ponds, 3,683 miles of rivers and streams, 730 miles of trails, 233,704 acres of wilderness, 103 miles of wild and scenic rivers, 34 developed campgrounds, and five picnic areas. Wow, that's a lot. Over 32,000 people visit this national forest to utilize their vehicle trails, so like off-roading, which I'm not a huge fan of. Over 27,000 people visit to view wildlife and natural features. Over 77,000 people visit to take walks or go hiking. There you go. There you go. Leave only footprints, take only pictures. Oh, Jen. All right. Timber is a big part of national forests. And in the Mendocino National Forest, they sell um, 2,200 cords of firewood worth over $6,000. And then they also sell a bunch of Christmas trees. 3,600 Christmas trees a year, and that's worth over $33,000 a year. Like, what is that fund? Oh, I don't know. The timber sales, just things around the park? Maybe. Uh Oh. It's just like one secretary, $33,000 a year. (laughs) 
I've been to parks and refuges where they do this, right? So right. they have one growing up and another coming in. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just like they do some timber stuff. Yeah. I mean, it has a history of sawmills around that area. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's all I know. And also, I bet there's probably some people studying it, right? For sure. And doing research. Some kind of, yeah. All districts of the National Forest have a variety of wildflowers that bloom at various times during the spring and through summer, such as the California poppy, the penstemon, which I've never heard of that before, shooting stars, wild iris, milkweed, Indian paintbrush, buttercups, dogwood, wild lilac, and many varieties of lupine. Oh. When I think of a field of flowers, I think of... Poppies. Poppies, yeah. yeah. Just getting real high. Super high. <laughs> the different kinds of vegetation in the park include mixed conifer forests, oak woodlands and savanna, chaparral, annual and perennial grass glades, and wet meadows. The districts also share many species of wildlife in common. So that includes a black-tailed deer, black bear, mountain lion, bobcat, coyote, skunk, jackrabbits, opossums, badger, gray squirrel, ground squirrel, rattlesnakes, gopher snakes, lizards, toads, Pacific tree frog, quail, wild turkey, blue grouse, golden eagle, spotted owl, goshawk, I don't even know what that is, prairie falcon, peregrine falcon, bald eagle, turkey, buzzard, scrub jays, woodpeckers, and a variety of migratory water and songbirds. Of all of the wildlife that I named, 14 are listed threatened and endangered species, including winter run, red-legged frog, northern spotted owl, Howelia, H-O-W-E-L-L-I-A, southern Oregon or northern California coho salmon. And salmon and steelhead spawn in streams of the Covello and Upper Lake Ranger districts, and rainbow trout, western pond turtle, and yellow-legged frog live in and around many of the streams in each of the three districts. So there's a variety of wildlife. The Upper Lake Ranger district has a small population of tule elk. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about these elk. Do you know what the collective noun for elk is, Jen? A herd. Right? You would think. You can say herd, yeah. for sure, uh-huh. but it's a gang. What? I know. Average lifespan in the wild for elk in general, 8 to 12 years. And they can be anywhere from like 4 to 5 feet tall. And then with their antlers, they can be up to like 9 feet. Their antlers are usually pretty large. And they can weigh anywhere from 325 to 1,100 pounds. Elk are also called wapiti, and that is the Native American word for them. It means light-colored deer. Mm-hmm. And they are related to deer. They're much larger than most of those relatives. Mm-hmm. Tula elk, I got a lot of information about these particular elk, the subspecies, from the California Nature Center's guide for Tula elk, okay. which is actually a really good guide. It's super cute. It shows like what their scat looks like and their little footprints and all mm-hmm. that stuff. They are a flagship species for California and North America, and they're largely considered to be a conservation success story. Um, they're also considered an umbrella species because their range and their niche, it's like super big mm-hmm. and covers other species that might be endangered or threatened. They're endemic to California. Of the originally six, now four subspecies. So there were six subspecies of these elk. Tula elk is one of them. Two species went extinct. Now they're one of four. They are the smallest of all those four subspecies. They are grazers and browsers, and they co-evolved with different kinds of California native vegetation like bunch grasses, oaks, shrubs, and forbs. They helped reestablish a lot of the perennial bunch grasses because they were historically transported by these elk's hoofs. And I'm thinking probably also they pooped them out. They like to live from sea level to about 3,000 feet in elevation. Historically, the Tula elk were found as far south as Buena Vista, 
or Bakersfield along the foothills of the uh-huh. Sierra to the east and the west to the coastal areas as far north as Mount Shasta. August through late December is their redding or breeding season. Usually bulls don't hang around with the calf-cow group, the moms and the babies. They'll come back for redding and breeding. Obviously, it's that time. And the dominant bull will breed with the females, and that can be anywhere from like 30 to 50 females. There will be these subordinate bulls who will like hang out on the outskirts and like try to instigate fights. And I guess the dominant bull also protects the cows from these subordinate bulls, these inferior bulls. Um, After they're done with rutting and whatnot, the males will leave and they'll go stay in like bachelor groups, but some of them will just take off alone. Females will hang in their group until they go off to give birth. So they usually give birth to one calf, though there have been reports of twins or observations of twins. Gestation is 250 to 255 days. The cow will give birth, usually in a steep terrain area with a lot of high cover. Some issues for the Tula elk. Habitat fragmentation, that's a big one, either by development or fencing, which we'll talk a little bit more about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Genetic health, because sometimes when they're fragmented, then their population herd size is very small. Yeah. Issues with genetic health. Poaching, that's a big problem. And then also there needs to be more education about the Tula elk and how vital they are in the restoration of native landscapes. Okay. So like not a lot of people really understand or over time haven't really understood that all of these native grasses that help hold the soil in place and are really good for the environment because they're native, they're meant to grow there. It's directly related to the health of these tula elk populations. Uh, Tula elk are extremely sensitive to human disturbance within their home range. um, And that also includes seasonal ranges, like bulls come back to mate and all of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Human disturbances include hunting, cattle grazing, increased human accessibility, herding and chasing elk, Poaching, forage, quality, and quantity. So if the grasses are changed because you might be, I don't know, ranching cattle, that's going to affect these tula elk. Or burning. Or burning, yeah. So I read this article by Erica Geis, or Gies, G-I-E-S. It's from October 1st, 2020, and it is entitled, Unique Elk in California May Be Killed Under Controversial Plan. The National Park Service's proposed plan for Point Reyes National Seashore would preserve ranching and cull tula elk within the park's boundaries. What? I thought this was really interesting because this is an endemic species. Mm -hmm. And I also read they're still under like the umbrella of threatened. Anyway, I'm going to read the first couple little paragraphs of this article. In the story of the United States, the calamity that befell the buffalo at the hands of pioneer settlers in the mid and late 1800s is well known. Tens of millions of the animals, lifeblood of indigenous peoples of the Great Plains, were hunted almost to extinction. Less well known is what was happening at the same time in California, the only home of the continent's smallest elk, the Tula elk, long a source of food and clothing for the indigenous coast Miwok people. Named for the Tula reeds that once covered miles of streamside habitat, and distinctive for their shaggy neck ruffs, white rumps, big eyes, and loud bugles bulls make to show their availability during mating season, tula elk are estimated to have numbered half a million before the arrival of Europeans. By the 1870s, white colonists in California had hunted them down to no more than 10 animals. What? Yeah. And actually, in 1874, I read this thing that there was a game warden named A.C. Tibbet who learned that a San Joaquin cattle baron, Henry Miller, found a few of these tula elk on his property. Mm -hmm. And so he took them and reestablished a herd. 
And that started, like kind of kicked off conservation for them, 1874. More than a century of conservation later, Tula elk have recovered to a population of about 6,000. We're talking about half a million and now 6,000. That number, uh-huh. you know, because they came from 10, we're going to say 10, going from 10 to 6,000, it's considered a success story. Uh-huh. But if you think about just the sheer numbers that they were in before, it's not too much of a success Good story. Grief. Yeah. That is insane. Mm-hmm. 750 of that 6,000 mm-hmm. are in the middle of a currently in the middle of this debate. So these elk live at Point Reyes National Seashore, which is a 111 square mile triangle of land jutting into the Pacific Ocean. And it's uh, about 45 miles north of the Golden Gate Bridge. Okay. And it's part of this Mendocino National Forest area, like watershed. Point Reyes has more than 900 plant species, 490 birds, and 80 mammals. And it has 50 federally listed threatened, rare, or endangered animals and 50 plants. Wow. You know what else lives there, Jen? Cows. (laughs) Uh, There are more than 5,000 dairy and beef cattle that take up a third of the space on that seashore. And ranching, I mentioned it earlier in the history, ranching goes back way back, you know, 1800s, early 1907, something like that. Mm -hmm. It's always been kind of a controversy. And the argument is that privately held cattle don't belong on public land because that's public land. Because they cause water pollution, habitat degradation, wildlife disruption, all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. The fragmentation of the land because of any kind of fencing you have to put up to take care of them. Proponents for for ranching say it is a historically important feature of the state's agricultural heritage. In September 2020, there was a report that was published talking about the environmental impacts of ranching. It detailed a bunch of different plans, like different levels of ranching and the impacts from those levels, from like current practices to maybe like more ranching or different kinds of ranching, all the way down to what it would be like with no ranching. Okay. The Park Service, you know, looked at this report and they were like, we think it's good that ranching continues. That's the point of this area is to show historically what America did in terms of ranching And it's always been ranching in this area since America took over. In addition to that support, they're willing to actually give permits to cull the elk in that area. What? This is a disaster for wildlife and a stunning mismanagement of the seashore, said Jeff Miller of the Center for Biological Diversity, a nonprofit environmental group. The plan is illegal and immoral, and we're going to do everything we can to stop it. Melanie Gunn, who's an outreach coordinator for the Point Reyes National Seashore, said in an emailed statement that the Park Service's preferred plan, quote, preserves multi-generational ranching in the park and provides the tools to maintain a viable, free-ranging Tula elk population. This reminded me of the mining episode because ranching on public land, it's not an anomaly. It's not like a weird thing, but it's not super widespread. In 1962, the National Seashore was designated as public land. Okay. Some of the ranchers at that time sold their land to the federal government. And then some of them sold their land, but with a stipulation that they could lease the land Mm -hmm. to continue ranching. The federal government, I read so many different articles. There are many linked in here, all with different perspectives. But basically the federal government was like, ranching is good. We also need to protect things, but like ranching is good. We're going to keep letting you guys lease it. Over all of these like years, ever since 1962, different directors of the interior uh-huh. 
have extended those leases, you know, 5, 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. Um, It's fully supported on both sides of the house in Congress. Everyone's totally down with it. This ranching is great. It's quote unquote historical. They must have some really good lobbyists. I don't know. The article says in 2011, the most recent year for which data could be found, ranching was permitted in more than 13 national parks, preserves, and more, a legacy of the difficulty of taking land away from people and giving it to wild animals. Basically, it's not uncommon Uh that ranching occurs on national lands. I mean, the whole point of making these national forests was to bring back wildlife and restore the earth. But then you have these practices happening that are like in direct conflict with that. Uh In 2012, the Secretary of the Interior, Ken Salazar, told National Park Service that they could, again, continue to extend those leases. So it's still something that's going on. It is like 1962 till now. Mm -hmm. In the article, it made it seem like this Secretary of the Interior was like controversial, but this is just status quo. Yeah. Yeah. There were just no changes. No changes. Yeah. Yeah. This ended up in the courts. Three environmental groups got together. It was led by the Center for Biological Diversity, and they took everything to the courts. They sued the National Park Service. They said the park had never studied the environmental impact of ranching on the seashore as the law required. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, the Park Service started looking at ranching impacts over six different ranching operations. And they looked at one of those ranches. They said, okay, this is the one ranch that we really like, Mm -hmm. the way they're doing this. And they wanted to make it an official part of the Park Service Management Plan. And that plan is called, quote unquote, Alternative B, Plan B. And in this plan, there would be a cap put on the herd size of free-ranging Tula elk to 120 individuals. And anything over 120 would be culled. So at the time of this article, there were 138 elk, meaning that 18 of those elk would be culled at that time, if this were put into place. Did you ever say, what what are they listed as by the IUCN? They're listed as vulnerable, but when you look at the thing, there's like a little bracket and it's kind of like threatened. It's under, it's called T3, whatever that means. Okay, but but they're listed. They're listed, yes. So Miller, Jeff Miller, who's from the Conservation Center for Biological Diversity, he says, the Park Service is greenlighting the slaughter of native wildlife. Of all the plans, the Center for Biological Diversity is most in favor of the one that ends ranching and would also remove a fence that is stopping a part of the herd from roaming freely. So there's like this fence, I think it's on the northern end of the triangle, mm-hmm. that stops this herd from being part of the other half of their herd. They're like, at the very least, you guys need to take that fence down. Yes. You're causing this like tiny herd to be formed in mean, genetic issues. We're just talking about that. Mm-hmm. Not good. They say it's the only option that follows Park Service mandates to provide, quote, maximum protection, restoration, and preservation of the natural environment as called for in Point Reyes National Seashore's founding document. The Center for Biological Diversity is like, you guys are literally shitting on your own document. Mm-hmm. You have to stop this. Kristen Denrider, a coordinator of the elk and pronghorn program for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, says elk need to be culled to keep the ecosystem in balance. Part of the reason for the issues with elk increasing in number is that a lot of the predators, natural predators, have been killed off by ranchers to protect cattle. Yes. So you're literally causing the problem of overpopulations of elk, and it's not even an overpopulation of this elk. Cattle not only take space away from native plants and animals, but they also degrade the land itself, says Laura Cunningham, a wildlife biologist with Western Watersheds Project, a nonprofit environmental group. Tula elk and the grasses they depend on evolve together, and the way elk graze helps spread and protect them. 
deep-rooted native bunch grasses hold rainwater in and grow with mosses and fungi, stabilizing the soil, Cunningham says. Cows, on the other hand, treat native bunch grasses as ice cream cones and eat them down <laughs> to the ground. <laughs> and I'm not trying to I'm not trying to hate on cows, okay? Yeah. I'm not. But also, and I'm not trying to hate on ranchers. Yeah. But this is this situation seems just really messed up. Also, indentations from cattle hooves can introduce possibly invasive species that wouldn't be able to hold soil as well as a native grassland species, leading to erosion and sedimentation in addition to crowding out native plants. It's all connected. And this is something folks have been talking about for a long time. Manure runoff can cause fecal coliform contamination in the waterways. And there are already threatened species like what I mentioned earlier, the coho salmon and the California red like frogs are in those waterways. Mm-hmm getting killed by fecal coliform. David Evans is a fourth generation rancher at Point Reyes, and he says the national seashore stands as an example of how people, livestock, and wildlife can coexist. It was founded with agriculture embedded into it, he says, adding that ranchers are already doing a lot to lessen their impact on the land, such as fencing off cattle from waterways and avoiding grazing their herds on steep slopes to help prevent erosion and reduce pollution from feces. He goes on to detail how the park's plans would create zones, allowing different types of ranching in different areas and requiring rotational grazing for pasture recovery. It sets a much more robust management expectation, he says. It really challenges us, the ranchers, and I'm not saying all of us are happy about this, to raise the bar and be better. At the time of this article being written, Mm -hmm. more than 90% of about 7,000 public responses to an earlier draft of the Park Service's plan were opposed to ranching, according to this analysis that was done by the Resource Renewal Institute, which is a nonprofit conservation group opposed to the Park Service's management plan. They have been doing this rotational grazing for a long time. That's not new Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. ranching. Yeah. It's not some kind of new technology. Part of the problem are the fences. Yes. That's what, when you said that, I was like, but isn't that the problem? It's like completely missing the point of a national forest. Yes. What's the point? (laughs) Just make it ranching land and don't make it a national forest if you don't care about the native species that live there. I just cannot get this at all. It's a big issue. And I'm just going to mention too that there is the the coastal Miwok have partnered with the Center for Biological Diversity. So I did look, I was like, what has happened since this came out? Like, did this plan go through? What's going on? And I found this, uh, I found this link. I'm not entirely sure about this organization. It's just called For Elk, F-O-R-E-L-K dot org. Um, it gives, it gives a really good timeline. In 1880, there were 60 coastal Miwok individuals left. 1850s, the white settlers killed the last Tula elk in the peninsula. So this is that one area, that mm-hmm. one triangle. 1958, speculators want to develop Point Reyes. 1961, environmentalists push to turn Point Reyes into a national seashore. 1962, the Point Reyes Act is signed by President Kennedy, making it a national seashore. 1976, Philip Burton Wilderness is created. That's where they designated roughly 30,000 acres of the park for wildlife, habitat, and recreation. 1978, they enabled legislation allowing the Park Service to extend leases. 1978 was also when Tula Elk returned to Point Reyes. That's when they took a herd of roughly 10 Tula Elk and reintroduced them to Tamales Point which is part of that area. But historically, that population, again, was half a million, just saying. 1998, there was a Tula Elk report recommending the removal of the Tamales Point fence. Uh, 2012, oyster farm leases were terminated. So even during all of this, there were oyster farms going on. 
2014 drought kills half of the captive Tula elk. So what? drought is a huge problem. It's happened a couple times and a bunch of the elk herd dies off because of this. And they can't leave because of the fences. 2015, the Park Service withdraws applications for Indigenous Historic District. This is the Park Service withdraws their application for an Indigenous Archaeological District to the National Historic Register, replacing it with an application for a Historic Ranching District, which was very quickly approved. 2016, environmentalists sue the, uh, the National Park Service for not complying with the NEPA, which we just talked about. Mm-hmm. 2019, the National Park Service releases revised general management plan that everybody hates. April 2021, the CCC approves the management plan. That's the California Coastal Commission approves the general management plan in a five to four vote tentatively on the condition of the Park Service develop a strategy for improving water quality in the seashore and create a progress report for the commission in five years. 2021, the parks management plan is finalized amid public dissent. There's a bunch of stuff you can do from this site for elk.org where you can write to senators or, you know, sign petitions, that kind of stuff. I don't really know about this organization so much, but it is a very much back and forth situation going on with these elk. Like I said, the Miwok tribe got together with Center for Biological Diversity. Since time immemorial, coast Miwok people have occupied, tended, stewarded, and defended the land of Point Reyes. That's from Jason Deschler, who's a dance captain and headman with the Coast Miwok Tribal Council of Marin. The Park Service proposal to shoot indigenous Tula elk, promote ranching that harms wildlife, water, and habitat is a travesty and contrary to the traditions of our ancestors. I mean, that's historical. They are the historical tribe in that area. That's the real history right there. Right. Just something to think about. The reason I bring this up is partially because of the story, but then partially because you talked about it in the science news. Okay. And I don't know if it was this exact place, but the Mendocino National Forest in April 2021 was looking for public input in the use of fire as a management tool. Okay. So there was an article I read from the California Wilderness Coalition that said, quote, conservationists hope that if it's done right, it might help bring the National Forest fire management approaches more in line with both ancient knowledge and modern ecological science. This, like I said, reminded me of the science news that you shared about returning to the roots of native landscape management. Mm Mm-hmm. And they say, for eons, Native people manage the landscape by carefully applying fire. In addition to fires used by Native peoples, the plants and wildlife of the MNF, the National Forest, evolved with fairly frequent lightning-caused fires that shape every aspect of local ecology. These frequent but often small fires consumed wood, duff, shrubs, and small trees on the forest floor and kept these materials from building up and creating more severe fires. So there's still some kinks they need to work out. Some of the management plan they're proposing includes logging, which isn't super great, but they're looking to work with nature to figure it out because drought is a huge problem. Mm-hmm. And whether it's caused like by humans or from lightning, fire has been devastating. Um, all right. Are you ready for this story? Yeah, I thought that was the story. Okay, so I'm excited. This is the story that Bob Potts sent to us via his oh, Instagram okay. message. So thank you, Bob. We love you. Yes. We, he he always us. sends us the greatest stuff. He, yeah. Um, August 7th, mm-hmm. 2021. There are three people, a family, if That's you will. pretty recent. Yeah, pretty recent. Uh, they're in their motorhome, in their RV, driving the, quote, sketchy roads in the Mendocino National Forest. And remember... This is the one forest with no paved roads cutting across it. Okay. So they're in this motorhome. There's Nicole Elizabeth Demere, who's 39, her mother, Stephanie Swain, who's 57, and then Stephanie's fiance, Sean Flowers, who's 51. Okay. Uh, And they're on their way to Fort Bragg. 
And their GPS is like, don't take Highway 20. Take all these random back roads. It's better. (laughs) So they're on all these back roads. They're going through this national forest. They're heading up in elevation. They're in a 33-foot RV and they're pulling a trailer. Okay. It's like kind of big. Yeah. And Stephanie says the roads got really bad and there were no obvious warning signs or turnaround points. Mm -hmm. They drove for eight hours and then it's nighttime. And they passed this sign for, quote, sudden oak death. And they stop, they take a picture. They have a cat with them, Velvet, and their dog, Max. Uh And the sign, it's literally melted off, Jen. Like the lettering on the sign, there's a picture (laughs) of it. It's like, (laughs) it's like from a horror movie. It's Uh like melted off because there was a fire the year before in August. Oh. A big fire. Okay. And they can even tell by the landscape. It's just like, it's been ravaged. Okay. So the sign's super creepy. They take a picture of it. Now it's like fully nighttime and they keep thinking they're going to come across like a campground or some other people or something, but there's nothing. There's no civilization, quote unquote. Okay. They start to descend the mountain, hill, whatever they just came up. Uh huh. And as they start to head down the hill, they're going a little too quickly. So Sean is driving, he taps the brakes, but they don't work. No. Yeah, they don't work. That's, that's impossible. A little after midnight. They're not sure the exact time. The RV and the trailer are just wildin' going down this incline. They have no way to stop. Stephanie said her vision became a flickering reel of stars, treetops, and silhouettes of her daughter and Sean bouncing up and down in the air. Oh my God. Yeah. Sean was pretty desperate at this point. He rammed the RV into a hillside. You know how like usually when you're going down a hill, they'll have those like ramps to help big trucks, like yes. if their brakes fail or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, I think he's trying to ram into a hillside kind of like that. It's not a runaway track, but he's just trying. He's, yeah. He's slamming on the brakes. He's pulling the emergency brake up, but nothing is engaging. And he realizes like, this is it. There's nothing I can do. And so they all brace as best as they can. And he yells out, this is it. Oh my God. Yeah. Nicole said there wasn't an impact. They were just like flying along. And then all of a sudden they were just stopped. Like silence. Okay. They're stopped. Everything is quiet. Sean had been ejected through the windshield, I think partially, <gasps> not the full way. He was hanging upside down. Oh, they could no. see him. Nicole's foot was pinned between the engine block and the dash, and Stephanie was relatively okay, like just bruises and scrapes, scratches, like nothing super bad. Okay. Uh, miraculously, Sean was alive, and actually, it's a miracle they were all alive. He gets free of the windshield and he and Stephanie work for nearly an hour to unpin Nicole's leg. And afterward, the trio, quote, laid there in the dark and cried. It's not quite dawn yet. So this is all still dark. They all just kind of laid there and drifted in and out. And when the sun was fully up, they could see that the RV was laying on some rocks and trees. They had no idea where they were. And the adrenaline rush the initial adrenaline rush of the accident and everything was wearing off and Sean was starting to feel a lot of pain. Nicole and Stephanie were able to walk around. I mean, I'm surprised Nicole was, but she was able to walk around and they started to look for signs of other people like campsites, tracks, something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephanie was able to find a spring and they collected some fresh water. Sean tried to walk around and I think they were piecing together how they would walk the three of them to go get help. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to like all walk together, but it was really obvious that Sean could not, he couldn't do it. He actually started to fall over. They had to catch him before he re-injured himself. Oh my gosh. 
Um, unbeknownst to them, they were approximately two miles from Hammerhorn Lake, where there's like a bunch of campgrounds and amenities and everything. But they, again, don't know where they are. Nothing is working. Cell phones aren't working. It didn't say anything about cell phones in the story, but based on like how all of this happened, I don't think they had, either they didn't have cell phones with them or they just weren't working. Are you going to tell me that they actually, some elk came and let them ride them <laughs> to safety? No, no, there's no elk. There's totally no elk in this story. I just kind of went, you know what it is, is I went down the rabbit hole of elk. So and you're like, I got to talk about that. I got to talk about that. Okay. All right. So that night, the 8th, they stayed in the RV. I guess it was like in enough of a good position for them to stay inside of it. Mm -hmm. They tried to sleep, but they were woken up to the sound of a bear coming into their camp. So not an elk gen, but a bear. It was scraping the metal sides of the RV, trying to get in. And the article that Bob sent, it says, the three huddled together as the predator stomped outside their ramshackle shelter. And finally, they screamed in unison, go away, bear, which seemed to scare it off. And I'm like, maybe they listened to our podcast and they knew what to do. Because <laughs> this is August 2021. We would have already had the bear episode. I'm just saying. Go away, bear. <laughs> and the bear was like, God, you guys are rude. Fine. When the sun came up on the 9th, they decided that Stephanie and Nicole would leave to go hike for help. They filled 12 water bottles in the mountain spring and they left the majority of the food that they had and water with Sean in their little makeshift camp. They brought with them two knives, a mirror, some water, an apple, and a lemon. So I don't think they had a lot of food to begin with. And I know you're wondering, because I was also wondering about it. I don't know if you remember the dog Max and the cat Velvet. Did they survive? And I just want to tell you that, yes, they survived. And they stayed back with Sean at the crash site. Oh, okay. Yeah, they made it. Okay. They made it. Good. Sean said he watched them leave. I was so scared for them. I thought they might get down the road and come back, but they didn't. So I guess he thought they were going to go and like they wouldn't be able to do it. And they would come back. They would all be together. Yeah, they didn't. It was hard going for the two women. The terrain was slick shale, which it's like scrambling up slick rock, you know, mm -hmm. like really mm -hmm. flat rock. And so they couldn't grip on anything to walk. They decided to make it a little bit easier on themselves. They would go down to the more like water edge, riparian areas. But then on top of that, they're going to be navigating like boulders, trees, the waterfalls, waterways, whatever. Right. Stephanie said they walked along the river for hours. They were both super fatigued and desperate. And they started to see, quote, structures that weren't there. So I think they were like, probably both of them ha also had concussions. They don't have a lot to eat. They're mm -hmm. tired. Mm -hmm. They're scared. They're desperate. They don't really know where they're going. I think they were hallucinating a little bit. This is from the article. Throughout the day, the pair relied upon each other for support as they uh, combated the creeping fog of hopelessness, the burning desire to survive. One would tell the other, I can't do it. The other would provide reassur reassurance. The memory of Sean, alone and injured back at the RV, compelled them onward. When the sun went down, they made camp next to the water and lit a fire to, quote, keep the animals away. They built the fire by peeling bark off nearby trees with their knives and then lighting it. Okay. Uh, Sean is still the crash site, obviously, feeling super desperate as well and likely really helpless. At one point, he considers lighting the RV on fire to draw attention to it, but then he decides against it. And when I was reading this article, I was like, man, you guys are in like a super fire damaged area. Like, why would you want to light fires? But well, I get and also it. also for... his cat and dog. Yeah. What are they going to do? I don't know. The next morning, the 10th, the women stumble on a road. 
they see tire tracks and culverts and they are initially super fired up. They're like, it's civilization, but they don't see anybody and they continue their walk. At some point, they're so exhausted, they end up just laying down on the road and Nicole lights another fire in the hopes that someone will see them on the road. Mm -hmm. They said that the wind was playing tricks on them. Like they would hear the wind going through the trees and they're like, oh my God, a car is coming or it's a helicopter or something, you know, like, but it was nothing. It was just the wind. Then a white truck comes down the roadway and the driver stops. And inside there's a a man and a woman. They walk up to the window. They're like, we need help. We're lost. We got a car crash, whatever. The woman's like, we can't help you. Oh no. Luckily, the woman's husband was a retired firefighter and he totally recognized the situation they were in. He was like, wow, these people are in a bad situation. And he was on the phone immediately calling for help. Why would she say we can't help you? Right? So firefighters were soon on the scene and their rescue became a blur of helicopters and medical personnel because they couldn't remember where they had come from. Yeah. They ended up having a helicopter go through. And I I almost think that because of the previous year's fire, they were able to see him better. So Sean, hears the helicopter. He ties a fluorescent orange shirt on a stick and flagged the helicopter down. Sean and Nicole, they were life flighted to Howard Memorial Hospital nearby. So they were both in pretty bad condition. Mm -hmm. Um, Stephanie, she rode in an emergency vehicle to meet them there. And she said that as they were driving to the hospital, she saw a vast nothing, no one for hundreds of miles. And she simply said, I don't know how he came out of there alive. Like sheer luck, I guess. Yeah. And the cat and the dog weren't hurt. So... From the article, when we spoke with the trio, they were in Santa Rosa, hunkering down in a hotel, healing from the wounds and gaming out their next steps. Their dog had been successfully rescued and is currently in the Ukiah Animal Shelter. This is in 2021. Um, I'm sure they got the the dog back. But the tuxedo cat, tuxedo cat, uh-huh. Velvet, ran away <gasps> when the rescuers came. He was like too freaked out. Yeah. Because it was a lot of stuff. Yeah. At the time of the article, they couldn't find the cat. Bob Potts was like, don't worry, they found the cat. It's funny because in the article, they're like, if anyone who reads this is willing to offer a ride into the wilds of Mendocino National Forest to help locate Velvet, please reach out. (laughs) And then they put her like email. Yeah. I bet a a bunch of people. For sure. Like helped out one. That's good. Poor kitty. Stephanie said that she was thankful for the first responders, the personnel at Howard Memorial Hospital and a social worker there named Tony. In the aftermath of their trials and tribulations, Stephanie provided a learning lesson that should be considered by all who intend on wandering into the wilderness. If we hadn't worked together, we wouldn't have survived. There was only one other article I found about this crash. Mm -hmm. Because I was like, wow, this is an incredible, kind of an incredible story. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stories that we tell, it's like people for 300 and some odd days, right? Yeah. They're like in the world. It's only, it's quote unquote, only 72 hours. But honestly, it's the same emotions, all of the same issues, super scary. So I was kind of surprised that there wasn't more information on this Mm -hmm. crash. Mm -hmm. But I did find this one other article. There was a patrol officer in the article, Officer Fowler. And he said that this tale highlights the importance of precaution and preparation anytime you decide to go off the beaten path, which honestly, I don't think they meant to. They didn't intend to do that. They were just trying to get to Fort Bragg. And their GPS led them astray. They were going on a road trip. They did not anticipate this happening. Your brakes going out on your RV? Yeah. Good grief. Yeah, that, that other it's like article... worst case scenario right there. Oh, for sure. And that other article that I read, it that Officer Fowler guy, it kind of felt like he was 
blaming them a little bit. And I was like, come on, man, don't victim blame. Don't do that. Like they made it out. They like, that was, that's all. I can't imagine being in a car wreck Mm -hmm. just on the street and the police show up to help. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like imagine you're in a car wreck and nobody's there. The Mendocino National Forest, man. Sounds beautiful. Really nice. Yeah. Huge. Very large. Yeah. Uh, there, I have a couple things. So I have an organization to check out. Okay. The Federated Indians of Grayton Ranchera at graytonranchera.com, G-R-A-T-O-N-R-A-N-C-H-E-R-I-A.com. The Grayton Ranchera community is a federation of Coast Miwok and Southern Pomo groups recognized as a tribe by the U.S. Congress. It looks like maybe they're going to have some kind of nonprofit attached to this tribe Mm -hmm. uh, where you can donate. They do give scholarships to tribe members and things like that for going to school. And they have a donation page, but there's no way to give donations yet. It just says coming soon. So I think at some time in the future, you'll be able to make donations to that tribe to help Mm -hmm. whatever they want to do. And part of that is this Tula Elk conservation. Sweet. All right. For our second organization to support, So that's one to check out because you can't support them yet. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This one is the sca.org. And that is a student conservation association. They have under them something called the Mendocino National Forest Trail Corps. Okay. Which is pretty cool. And this is when they are going to be reconstructing four miles of the Benmore Trail in the Mendocino National Forest. And, you know, part of the issue that they were talking about with the elk Mm -hmm. is that education, right? Right. And this organization supports the education of young people. That's right. It's a student. National Forest. Yeah, it's great. Student Association. I've actually heard of this before. They do a lot of work with different like refuges, like with Fish and Wildlife and also Mm -hmm. National Parks. And it's an opportunity for young people to get involved in Yes. Start their careers early, hopefully, in this kind of work. And it's all different ages. So there's like high school, college age, gap years, field leaders for like 21 and over. Um, You can be a mentor, all sorts of cool stuff. Cool. So yeah, go check them out. P-H-E-S-C-A dot O-R-G. Awesome. Anyway, uh, Jen. Yes. We listened to the story. I hope you enjoyed it. What would you bring in your emergency preparedness kit? Well, it's really obvious what I think needs to be in the emergency preparedness kit. A working GPS? A working GPS and maybe some RV maintenance. Here's the thing. Okay. I think what you need to have in your emergency preparedness kit Mm -hmm. is a cat named Velvet. I'm just going to leave it right there. I love that so much. Yeah. Plus, it's a tuxedo cat. I have four of them. Yes. They're good cats. Should name one of them Velvet. I'm probably going to get a fifth one soon. It <laughs> might happen. That I is, mean, why not? That is the episode. Yeah. In the end, it all boils down to one cat named Velvet. <laughs> named Velvet. <laughs> He's going to save all the Tula elk. That's right. Thanks for that story. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad I didn't look at that. Because I remember when we got the story, you're like, don't look at the story. And I was like, okay, I'm not looking. Yeah. Well, and originally I was just going to tell their story. Mm-hmm. And then I just started reading about all the, the national things. forest. I was like, Let, you know, we'll talk about the national forest. And I was like, what are these elk? And then it was just a crazy rabbit hole of articles. And controversy. So many different opinions. And I will tell you, there are sources on either side of those opinions that are just really bad sources. People yeah. are really divided. Yes. I, I mean, it sounds like it. Yeah. And it sounds like the Park Service is really trying to find a balance, but it's hard, mm-hmm. 
right? Yeah. And I think I think it is that they have these documents that mm-hmm. say like we're going to do these things. Yeah. And then their actions are kind of yeah. Eh. Not well, the greatest. You know, a lot of people's emotions play into that and it's people's true. history and people, you know, managing those park service, they might have family that are ranchers and, you know, that's right. what's important to them. So who knows? It's true. Anyway, thanks for that amazing story. You're welcome. I loved it. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jen and Megan, and edited by Jonathan Pillsbury. We'd love it if you can leave us a five-star iTunes review on Apple Podcasts. You can support us by following on Instagram or Twitter, listening and subscribing wherever you get podcasts or becoming a patron. Check out more on our website at youregonnadieoutthere.com where you can see our awesome eco-friendly sponsors and Nature Nerd Artisans page. If you'd like to send us your own stories or episode ideas, you can submit them through our contact form on the website or to our email, youregonnadieoutthere at gmail.com. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. You called me the other day and you were like, listen. Did I call you? I hardly ever call you. It's rare. Rare occasion. One of the times you called me the other day. During a single day. And I then think you I started like mini scolding me. I was like, stop it. <laughs> you said you're using your mom voice. <laughs> I was like, stop it right now. Don't use your, you can't use your mom voice on other moms. It's true. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. I know where that is. The Bay Area. Like, where people say things like hella. Whatever. I lived there. It was hella cool. Good. Good on him. Right. I guess. It's like, you don't want those guys. They're weak. Look at their antlers. Lame. Subpar. <laughs> I just want to know what Velvet was doing the whole time. They couldn't find him. He's just like riding around on the back of bears. <laughs> yeah. Him and that bear. Him and that, that bear with... just became like best, best friends. Friend. So like yeah. Milo and Otis. For sure. For yeah. sure. What kind of hairballs do you think that cat <laughs> After licking with? bears? Yeah. He's like, hold still. And he's like kneading them. He's like, <laughs> he's just making biscuits on the bears. And the bears are like, oh, it's kind of nice. This is different. <laughs> Tony, why don't you ever do this to me? Yeah. I feel like I've seen this movie and I'm trying to look it up. Wasn't there like a Ricky Schroeder movie? The family like falls oh, off a cliff in their RV and he's left by himself and this old mountain man like... Oh my God. Adopts him. I've never heard of that. It sounds amazing. I'm going to pause for a second. You look it up. Let me look it up. This movie is from 1980. It's Ricky Schroeder. <laughs> it's called The Earthling. And I remember watching it mm. when I was a kid. I mean, it was on HBO or who knows. But Jen, this is real life in 2021. <laughs> Ricky Schroeder, <laughs> Megan. It's this, not Ricky Schroeder. But it the, the parents, like, they fall off a cliff in their RV and he's left all alone. That's awful. Yeah. Did and then some old mountain man just comes takes along. Him, comes along and rescues him. I, I don't know. Well, anyway, there's, there's that, no that is all that's in my head right now. That's amazing. They're just bandanas and snapping their hooves. They're just, they're just really like, when you're a jet, you're a jet all the way from your first cigarette. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. Mostly gangs aren't like that anymore. Yeah, just, true. You know, we're not like, we don't live in a musical, unfortunately. <laughs> Have you ever seen those like really awful like 1960s motorcycle gang movies where it's like all of the guys in there are wearing like, a lot of leather and they have like bandanas tied to the side of their necks? <laughs> Oh, so good. So good. <laughs> You're like, anyway. what kind of gang are you? I feel like you said bald eagle twice, but that's fine. And you forgot the possums. It's an opossum, Jen. <laughs> we know, Megan. We're in North America. Good Lord. Did I say bald eagle twice? 
feel like you did. Golden Eagle. I said Golden Eagle. Golden okay. Eagle. Yeah. All right. <laughs> 